0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis, a solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at NASDAQ.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's NASDAQ.com slash solutions slash S O L O V I S. Hello, I'm Ted Sides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Christopher Zook, the chairman and CIO of Kaz Investments, a 20-year-old non-traditional multifamily office that has $3 billion invested in a series of thematic strategies, including $500 million from the Kaz team and its shareholders. Our conversation covers Christopher's self-determined path to creating Kaz, a thematic model that creates raving fans, and some of Kaz's investment themes, including GP stakes, midstream energy, disruptive technology, and changing consumer behavior. Along the way, we touch on Kaz's investment philosophy, sourcing, research, and implementation of themes. We close with Christopher's relationship with Tony Robbins and the future of Kaz with Tony as a partner. Please enjoy my conversation with Christopher Zook. Christopher, great to
1: see you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd love to go back to your early experiences in investing. Well, it started in college. I've been investing really since I learned what investing was in high school a little bit, but college a lot. I actually helped put myself through college by trading commodities futures and currencies and things of that nature. And so I really enjoyed the investment side of it. I've always been intrigued by the markets and all along the way of my career, it's just been a matter of going back to that passion and that love of finding returns. So, talk me
0: through what your early work experiences were leading into founding Cash.
1: So, I started in the uh, in the brokerage side of the world and started with Payne Weber straight out of school. Was quickly recruited to Lehman Brothers very soon after I actually started in the industry. It was an exceptional opportunity and learning experience for me there. I was recruited to Prudential Securities to get involved in the executive services group there, which is what I was involved in at Lehman, helping the uh, firm's investment banking clients. And then was recruited by Oppenheimer to take a much more formal geographic role with Oppenheimer in the executive services business. And those were the stops that I had before I started the firm.
0: So What was the impetus for starting your own firm?
1: Yeah, you know, I always loved the asset management side of it. The brokerage side of the world was incredibly valuable and lucrative and interesting, but it was also a hamster wheel. And it took me farther and farther away from actually managing dollars and managing money and finding investments. So really from the time I was 21 years old, and it goes back to actually the relationship with Tony Robbins. My wife and I actually in 1991 did Tony's tape series. And part of the goal setting workshop that we did there, I actually set the goal of starting a firm within 10 years by the name of CAS Investments. And I knew exactly what it was going to be. And so every step along the way for the next decade was to prepare me for that opportunity. And so, literally nine years and nine months later, we opened the doors of CAS.
0: And what was that model you had envisioned way back?
1: The original model was a private equity firm, a hedge fund. And separately managed accounts that had brokerage. And the things I realized over the course of that decade was everything I wanted to do had nothing to do with brokerage. So the other complications that come with having a broker dealer are reasons why we chose not to pursue that aspect, but everything else was consistent with what that dream was literally in 1991.
0: So when you went to start, you'd spent that decade or so in brokerage. And now you're going into a business where most of the lines weren't the things you were doing. So what was that initial launch like for you?
1: It was actually pretty seamless for me. And and what I started doing actually in 1992 was managing separate accounts on a discretionary basis. So while I was on the brokerage side, I was in the asset management side of the business as well. And so I was able to then, when I moved to Prudential and then moved to Oppenheimer, I was able to port my track record. And I had a very good track record, long, only large cap, GARP as a strategy, if you will, or style. And so when I started the firm, we had a lot of alternatives investments that we effectively rolled up into a fund of hedge funds, and then we had the separately managed accounts business that we were able to move over intact. The thing that obviously none of us expected was a month after we started the firm, nine eleven happened, and so that created some interesting dynamics around the start of the business. But the actual launch of the business was pretty seamless because that would already been on the pure asset management side.
0: It does seem like the way you approach investing today is a little bit different from large cap stocks and hedge funds and private equity. So what was the evolution of CAS from where you started to where you crystallized what you've evolved into?
1: Certainly, the business model and the original design was always we're investors of our own money first and then we're going to figure out what else we're going to do in the marketplace and then open it up to our investors. And the large cap long only, that gave us a good core, if you will. And then the satellite was all of the alternative investments we did on the hedge fund side and on the private equity side. And where the transition really began to occur was in the mid-2000s, particularly when we shorted subprime with John Paulson. I had a great relationship with John, went back to literally 1994. The opportunity to invest in shorting subprime with John Paulson was something that we really wanted to be able to do for all of our investors. And so yes, we had a fund that they could do that through, but we really wanted a dedicated specific vehicle for that. And ultimately that is what we were able to create. We saw that that was very appealing to our investors. We were able to totally align our interests with theirs to where we were the largest investor in what we were doing. We didn't take a management fee. We just took a percentage of the profits. And that was just perfect alignment in their eyes and perfect alignment in our eyes. And ultimately we have a saying that where there's maximum alignment, there's maximum profits. And ultimately that's really what caused us to work more and more and more towards the standalone vehicles or conduits as we call them. Some people call them SPVs to be able to really cover the entire gamut of the investment landscape and go wherever we wanna put our personal capital. And that was really the turning point. And then we gradually over time, we refined all of our focus to just alternative investments. We actually spun off our large capital only business into a standalone investment advisor. We gave an entrepreneurial opportunity to those folks. And then everything we do is pooled vehicles and everything we do is alternative investments.
0: So if you take a step back, what is your business today?
1: So our business is curating unique and exclusive investments for our global network of investors. We are very different than some that provide access. And access is important, but what we are is curated access. It's truly our money first. And so it's much more alpha-focused as opposed to just beta-focused. And our business is literally taking to our entire ecosystem, which is 2,000 investors in 47 states and 13, 14 countries, to be able to give them something that has been curated for them, handpicked, invested by us personally first, and then open to them in a way that they would never be able to get to it on their own.
0: This started with subprime, as you mentioned. And so why don't you start by walking through the story of how you found that opportunity and then how
1: it played out. So I've always been a very thematic investor. And for us, being thematic just allows us to refine our thought and refine our efforts and our energy. And so in 2006, it became very, very clear to us that the housing bubble was going to burst. And I literally was so frustrated because of the fact that I had no idea how to short a house. So I didn't know how to take advantage of that bursting of that bubble. But I was literally in Los Angeles airport and I was doing some manager meetings out there and DiTech funding came on the TV there in the airport With this commercial saying they would give me 120% of the home's value, no credit check, no income verification. And I yell out loud, that is nuts. And everybody in the waiting area (laughs) thinks I'm nuts. But I like, this is insane. My literally very next trip was to New York. And I was with John and his team. And they were talking about what they were doing in housing. And it took me 45 minutes to say, I'm in. We definitely want to do this. It took me 45 days to understand what the heck they were talking about, CDSs and CDOs (laughs) and CDO Squares and all these things. But it was clear that they had come up with a very, very good way to take advantage of the housing bubble bursting. And so we knew that it was a way to make a profit from something we believe was going to happen, but that it also would be a significant hedge for the rest of our portfolio in the event that that were to take down the economic system every theme that we approach, we approach it the same way. What's the what's the theme? What's the best risk reward to take advantage of that theme? And then from there, what is the best team to partner with? Most of the time, we don't have the expertise in-house. Sometimes we do, but most of the time, we're going to partner with the very best in the world at what it is that they do to take advantage of that theme. And Shorting Subprime is just such a great example of that.
0: I'd love to dive into some more of team, themes. Before we do that, It'd be great to talk a little bit more about, as you've gone through these experiences, how do you think about investing that then can lead to the identification of these themes?
1: So thinking about investing is, it's well used, but you know, where's the puck going? Skating where the puck is going to be, to quote Mr. Gradsky. We really, really like to have the wind at our back. Now to be very clear, we will invest with the wind in our face, but we have to be paid exponentially better. To be willing to go counter trends. So in 2009, 2010, we were clearly contrarian when we were buying up everything that had gotten destroyed during the global financial crisis. But because we shorted subprime, we literally had the benefit of all of this cash coming into us, and we were like a child in a candy store. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, I'll buy that, I'll buy this, I'll buy this. Well, we were very much contrarian then, but we knew the opportunity set justified investing with the wind in our face. But most of the time, we're gonna look for the wind at our back. And then from there, it's going to be, where's the highest probability adjusted outcome that's gonna give us the best opportunity to be successful with the highest level of confidence? And that's really, really difficult to do today, but there are still pockets of that. But in so much of what we do, and if you look at everything we've done, whether it be GP stakes or midstream energy or things of that nature, we have always looked at it from the standpoint, it's really kind of hard for us not to make money. And if it's hard to not make money, we feel pretty good about the opportunity to make a very good return.
0: There is this line I like to say that the hardest day to vest is always today. So I'm not surprised to say it's particularly tough today. But let's start with the ones you mentioned. So let's start with GP stakes and what you see in that opportunity.
1: So when we look at the opportunity in the GP stakes world, it's tied to the unique nature of the private equity business. And GP stakes were very popular and very much around in hedge funds. And we just consistently passed on that. Not that we disliked the strategy, it just had a much more binary outcome. If you own a piece of a hedge fund in two years, you're either just doing incredibly well or you're out of business. There's really not a lot in between. Certainly there's some in between, but not much. It's much more binary for a passive third party. So when we heard about the opportunity that was developing with our our partners at Dial, When Dial talked to us about what they were doing in GP stakes of private equity firms with firms that we already knew, it literally was a similar meeting. It was 45 minutes and it was like, "Okay, we're in and now we need to understand all the dynamics on this. But we love the fact that the private equity business model and private credit and private real estate fit in the same bucket. But you have locked up capital that's going to pay a contractually obligated management fee, regardless of what transpires with that business, which provides enormous downside protection for the owner of that business. But it also then has this big upside optionality. So when you have firms that go from, like in some of the cases, we acquired stakes in businesses when they had $15 billion in assets under management. They were already a big, really, really good firm, but now they're $50 billion. And so if in three to four years you triple the size of any business, you're obviously expecting to see an enormous value increase as well. And that's what we've been able to see on top of that downside protection, the current cash component, and on top of, as we see now even more in our partnership with Bonacord and the middle market space, it gives us the ability to see firms today at $3 billion, $5 billion, $10 billion that literally have the ability to be the mega firms of tomorrow and be 50 to $100 billion firms, that gives us very asymmetric opportunities, very highly convex positive asymmetry in the way that we can invest in these businesses, which is why we've invested over a billion and a half dollars in that space in the last five years.
0: So have you seen these evolved in the last couple of years? There was always this question of serving multiple masters. The GPs going out, they're investing on behalf of LPs, but now there's an ownership of a business and they're thinking about the shareholders, whether that's you as a stakes buying. Certainly, we could talk about the public companies too. How have you seen that evolve in the behavior of the GPs that have sold
1: stakes? I think it does depend. It was one of the things that we really, really focused on and still do on what is the motivation for the sale of a stake? Again, this is something that's public knowledge. We sold a minority interest in our business to Tony Robbins earlier this year. Why? Because of the fact that we believe that together we could grow the business much faster with the balance sheet capital than we would individually. So do we think today, and I'll just use us as an example, do we think differently today because of the fact that we have Tony and AJ and Josh and the rest of the team as shareholders? And the answer is absolutely not. Do we have more responsibility to them? Yes, but we've had shareholders in our business going back since I founded the firm in 2001. So we don't think any differently. And most of these private equity firms are exactly the same way. They own 75, 85, 90% of their business after we've bought our stake. Their number one objective is to make sure that they're growing their business, doing the right thing for their clients, and then ultimately to make sure that everybody wins as a result of that. Now that said, there are a couple of cases that we're aware of where it has become much more about, there's an old joke when I was chair of the Texas Head Fund Association, which I founded, we had a big debate. This was in the early 2000s about whether or not hedge funds really cared about the 20 anymore or did they just care about the two? And there's a legitimate debate there. And I think that's what happened to the hedge fund industry quite a bit, is that if it was easier to go get a billion to two billion to four billion and you get two percent on that, well, the 20 percent you don't want to take a lot of risk with because you don't want to impede the management fee income. Well, in the private world, I think there is some of that that is absolutely happening, where firms are growing just for the sake of growing, not because of the fact that they're doing it for performance. So when we talk to these managers, how much are they focused on the two, how much are they focused on the 20 is a real discussion point. If a firm takes their eye off of the performance ball, they're not going to raise new capital. If they don't raise new capital, then obviously the golden goose gets cooked. So it's really important for them to focus on that. But what is very fascinating to me, and it's a big part of the theme and a good example of the theme and how things happen The theme for GP Stakes actually started, of all places, literally in the Alamo. The Alamo of Texas is a famous landmark about the history of the state of Texas becoming independent from Mexico and becoming its own country. So at an an investor meeting for one of the firms that we'd invested with, I'm sitting with two large pension players on my right and on my left. And literally, I love to ask the question, and it's used, a lot of people have borrowed this over the years, what's the greatest challenge in your business today? Not your problem, but what's the greatest challenge? And I asked both of these gentlemen on my right and my left that question, and they came back and said, without question, the number one challenge that we have in our business today is we have too much money to deploy, and I have to concentrate my holdings because one of them after about three glasses of wine he started really moping about how he had a billion dollars he needed to spend a quarter he said if i go to my board and say these are the 20 managers we're going to hire this quarter, and next quarter we're going to hire 20 different ones at $50 million bucks a piece. I'm going to get fired because of the fact that they're not going to want to look at that. But if I go to them and say, by the way, we're going to do these four managers that you already know, they're already really high quality, and we're going to do 250 a apiece, then they're going to give me a raise because I've put the capital to work and I've done it in a way that's easy for them. Well, guess what? That means the big are going to get bigger. That is exactly what's transpired. So some of the hyper growth for some of these managers is because they are focused on growing their AUM, both through diversification of platform, geography, et cetera, but also from fund size. And the other part is being driven by the institutional investors is saying, look, I'm trying to limit my number of general partner relationships. So therefore, I need you to take 250 next time or 500 or I got to pass. So we're seeing both sides of that. And what I have been pleased more than anything else on is the alignments that we have built in these transactions with all of our partners is what's good for them is good for us. What's not good for them is not good for us. And ultimately, what is best for the partner, the end investor, the end client is still overwhelmingly what's going to drive the success of our investments. And that's why we really, really like that space because of that alignment.
0: How do you think about it going forward, right? We've gone through this period of time with ultra low rates, private equity, basically anything you touched in private equity has performed really, really well. Are you still as excited
1: about these opportunities going forward as the success you would have had in them over the last couple of years? For us as an owner of the GP business, the vast majority of the success is going to be the success of the franchise as opposed to an individual fund. So don't get me wrong. If a fund is a 2-2 gross versus a 2 gross, it's better for us. But ultimately, it's about their ability to grow their business and to grow their platform and to be consistent. And one of the things that I'm involved in outside of the workplace is that I was nominated and and approved by the Texas Senate to be on the State of Texas Pension Review Board. And so we are the watchdog for the 100 public funds in the state of Texas. Well, one thing I can tell you definitively is that those folks have a problem. They have a six or 7% actuarial assumption that they've got to meet, and there's zero chance that their public equity or fixed income buckets are going to meet that need. So they're having to do more privates. That is that big tailwind that I was talking about. Obviously, the tailwind of the growth of private equity and private investments as an asset class. But here's the interesting thing, and we've heard this from sponsor after sponsor after sponsor most of the investors recognize and realize they may not get as higher returns at this valuation level that they did 10 years ago, simply because EBITDA multiples are higher, valuations are higher, exit values, maybe are higher, maybe they're not. But if you're a director of a public pension and your actuarial assumption is seven, and yes, XYZ sponsor gave you 16 in their last vintage, and this time you really think they're gonna give you 13, that's still your best option. So you're still going to give them a billion dollars or a half a billion dollars to go do that 13 or 14. So yes, to be very clear, as an LP, there are some pockets of the market that we're much less interested in because valuations are simply not attractive to put our own personal capital. As a general partner, we have to be comfortable with the performance of the underlying firm and their ultimate delivery of results so that they can keep growing. But as long as they're meeting the expectations of their clients and their clients are happy, they're going to continue to grow.
0: How have you thought about comparing the GP stakes opportunity with the potential to buy public company stocks, Blackstone, Apollo, Carlyle, the set
1: of them that are available now in the public markets? About a year and a half ago, two years ago, and particularly at the depths of COVID, we were very aggressively buying the publicly traded private firms. They were trading at compelling valuations with good dividend yields, And they've just gone up vertical, not picking on any one in particular, but some of them are up four or five times where they were last April. And they're now being valued differently than they used to be valued because of the fact that, A, a lot of them converted to C-corps, which helped a great deal. And two, because of the fact that they're all about management fee profits and management fee profits are very predictable for the reasons that I just articulated. So now it basically becomes a cap rate trade. That's not something that we're really that excited about. So, today as we sit, we're not real positive on the publics. We see a much better value in the privates, which ultimately could potentially be acquired by the publics, which we think is a next wave where the publics will use very expensive currency to acquire smaller private companies, bolt on new product lines, new geographic lines, and they can do it in a massively accretive way. That's where I think we're headed in the industry next. But I'm not a buyer of the public's right now, but at the right time, the right values, they're a great opportunity.
0: I'd love to move on to midstream energy.
1: We're in Houston, Texas. So that's where we're based and we have operations around the country, but we are based here. So we are in quote unquote, the energy capital of the United States. So we know the space very, very well have been involved in energy for all of my career And when the shale started becoming a big deal, one of the things that's very powerful about our ecosystem, and it's a little corny, but it, it is true. The power of our ecosystem is the ecosystem. We have private equity firms, private credit firms. Their founders are investors of ours. They invest in what we do because they get the value proposition that we bring to the table. Well, the folks in energy we're saying, Christopher, you really need to pay attention to this thing called shale. And I'm like, shale, what is that, like a granite countertop? What is that? Why do I care? And I go, no, no, that's no, a little bit bigger than that. And so they walked me through, because I'm not an energy petroleum engineer, so they had to explain to me what it was that the shales did and why we were able to unlock all of these resources. So when we did that investment, though. It was very much a little bit more of the old-fashioned wildcatting days of you bought a bunch of acreage, you hope to be able to drill into the shales, make a bunch of money, sell that acreage. And a lot of people did very well, but it was a much higher risk profile than we were comfortable with. Whereas in the midstream space, very close to the wellhead and only exclusively available in the private markets, there was this enormous demand that was growing to be able to handle processing and gathering and transportation to get what that new production was where it needed to be. And it was so simple. So many of these businesses that we made so much money from in the shale revolution, there were such simple businesses. It's a choo-choo train that goes around on a track and you put the crude oil in there and then you take it to where it's supposed to go. But it's very, very labor intensive. It's very capital intensive and you have to have a lot of expertise in order to do it. But it literally is a choo-choo train that goes around on a single track. That's what it is. But when you can make four extra money in a short period of time by building it, that's an investment that we like. And it had a lot more visibility and a lot more predictability, going back to that overriding theme, and a higher probability of outcome that was positive. That's why we're more comfortable effectively investing in the picks and the shovels as opposed to the speculators that were wildcatting in the space.
0: How have you thought in the last couple of years in particular, there's such a big movement on ESG into the environmental piece of really anything touching natural resource and energy. How has that impacted your investment thesis in the area?
1: It has impacted our thesis because of the fact that the industry is very capital starved right now. And it's the result of that capital starvation is much higher prices than certainly a lot of people want to see at the gas pump and natural gas and heating their homes and things of that nature. Because while certainly energy transition is going to happen over time, it is that over time. And it's not a two-year process. It's a two-decade to five-decade to who knows how long process. So are we investing in the transition? Yes, we always have looked at where energy is an asset class like all others. Fossil fuels are a piece of that puzzle. So is wind, so is solar, so is hydro, so is everything else. So we've always looked at it collectively and holistically. Now there's more opportunities for the newer forms of energy production than there was in the past. But fossil fuels still are a major driver of our economic power and the ability to live our lives the way we do. So now what you end up with when people are talking about the supply demand when COVID was ending, any surprises we get are likely to be on the upside. I don't know a single person that was forecasting $80 oil about a year ago. So if you don't have as much drilling activity, if you don't have as much production coming out of the ground, we're going to have to get it somewhere. It's going to come from overseas or it's going to come from here and we're going to have to drill for more. So what does that do from an investment thesis standpoint? It means that you have to be much more disciplined on evaluation because of the fact that your exit is going to be much more difficult. It's going to be much more challenging. It's not going to be like the old days where people had too much cash and they just bought everything they could find. Now you got to be sure you can cash flow out of it. And you have to be sure that the buyer on the other end is going to be strategic and most likely is going to also have to pay less themselves. So that means your entry price has to be even better. And then also try to take advantage of this transition as it is occurring, which we have done through a number of the investments we've made.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Anytime you think about tailwinds these days, people talk about technology. And imagine that's an area you've had to be thinking about. Curious how you've participated in it.
1: It's one of our favorite themes. We are... So thematic that we try to bucket everything in to themes. And inside of disruptive technology, what we've looked for are things that are truly revolutionizing the way that we're functioning in our day-to-day lives. And it dovetails with another theme of ours, which is the change of consumer behavior. So a good example of that is one that we have been very involved in, which is Open Door. Opendoor is a company that we invested in in the private markets because we saw this convergence of disruptive technology and change in consumer behavior. The vast majority of young people this day and age have grown up with something in their pocket that they feel like they can do almost anything on and they want to be able to do that, or at least on a website. Well, Opendoor does that. For me, literally, part of the decision to invest in Opendoor was driven by what I would consider to be some of the most grassroots research you can do. I sold my mom's house to Opendoor. I looked at all the iBuyers. I looked at how it was working. I realized how much time it was going to save me, how the price was very fair, not the best price that I could have gotten, but a very fair price. And then ultimately, we saw how easy they were going to be able to scale the business to be able to get a share of the revenue on the cable that was installed and the repairs that were done and the carpentry that was going to be put in the paint job that was going to be necessary and how they could vertically integrate the business so dramatically. So we invested in Opendoor as a private company because of technology disrupting, obviously, the real estate agent world, as well as the change in consumer behavior to wanting it to be instantaneous, convenient, and basically never have to talk to anybody, which you don't ever have to do if you do something on Opendoor. So there we've participated in other areas like the ride-sharing revolution, another really fun story that people like to tell is that I literally don't have a car. And for people in New York and San Fran, that's not that unusual. But in Houston, Texas, I'm kind of the anomaly, to put it mildly. And the reason is because I was not a believer in ride sharing. And so in order to test that thesis, and this was many years ago, is I said, okay, fine, I'm going to give up my car. I can always get another one. And I'm just going to use Lyft nonstop, for my transportation we're going to track the impact and i had a nice car but not an extravagant car and my cost of transportation went down 85 percent now that's not true for every person but because of my situation that's what it was for me and so it was something we were very convinced in so we've been very big in the ride sharing around the entire world with positions on almost every continent now. And so disruptive technology for us is that. It's also the way that healthcare is changing. It's also the way that we're analyzing and evaluating data. A lot of people ask us if we're doing anything in crypto, and we're not doing anything directly in crypto because we don't have an edge. We don't have an expertise. So we're partnering with our relationships in Silicon Valley to be able to do that. And you know, we have one of our firms that literally on paper, right now, one of our firms, they invested $2.5 million in Solano. And today that stake is worth over $4 billion. Well, I'm really glad we participated in that. <laughs> we didn't have to make any decisions. We just trusted people that we know are really good at what they do to do their jobs. And that's how we've participated in the Zooms and the Pelotons and the DoorDashes of the world. And we have great strategic partnerships with many in Silicon Valley.
0: of these different themes. You know, if you talk about GP stakes, you're really referring to a dial a bond accord, trying to take advantage of that. And in some of these others, are Open Doors is a specific company. How do you decide when to invest in a fund, when to invest directly?
1: It's one of the places where the science becomes art. And with the right sizing and the right amount of diversification, everything becomes logical and makes sense for us and, and our personal capital, and obviously for our ecosystem. So in some cases, the theme is best executed by owning a basket of multiple things within that theme. And in other cases, it's really just a specific company. So we're an investor in a company based in Austin by the name of Icon. And it's a really good example of a company that we literally were a seed investor in the company. We have a relationship with the team there. Most people don't know Icon unless they read the Wall Street Journal article two weeks ago that talked about how Lennar Homes was partnering with this company in Austin to print, with a 3D printer, 100 homes outside of Austin. Well, that is Icon. And if you have not seen the, the video, go to YouTube and type in Icon 3D printed homes and you'll be fascinated. But why did we invest in that specific company? It's because of the fact that there was no diversified way to invest in 3D printed homes. We believe that this falls under the category of doing well while doing good. It's great for the environment. It's great for the people that need clean, safe housing. And at the same time, it's great from an economic model perspective to be able to change the way that homes are literally being built. So if there was a way to do that in a diversified way, we would have considered it. But instead, this was a dedicated play. Similar with Open Door. There was no diversified way to participate with the iBuying world, there is today, there's multiple players now, and Zillow left the building, so now there's just basically Opendoor and a few others. Open Door. we thought it was going to be Coke and Pepsi, and now it's just going to be Coke and Coke. But that's the main driver, and so we do a tremendous amount of co-invests and direct investments. We also will invest in primary funds, but most of what we're focused on day-to-day are these big strategic partnerships that give us unique access and preferential access to co-investments and then the direct investments alongside people that we have a lot of confidence in.
0: When you create a particular conduit in one of these themes, what goes into it? So you can imagine a fund, there's GP Stakes, there's, oh, the public stocks. How does that all come together?
1: In most cases, it's going to be either considered a public vehicle or a private vehicle. And so a private vehicle is very rarely going to get involved in anything in the public markets. So that doesn't mean we'll always do that, but that's where we have been historically. So from there, it becomes very thematic. And so one theme, one conduit. So just talking about GP stakes, we have our Private equity ownership fund one, our private equity ownership fund two, and our private equity ownership fund three. And those are going to be a combination of fund and co-investments alongside of that fund and or direct investments that we choose to make in that space. And in the case of like an open door, it's going to be literally a fund of just open door. And so our investors know they're buying a piece of open door and that is specifically the only thing that they're buying. We do have what we refer to as our fund of everything, which is our diversified private investments vehicle, the market diversifier, if you will, to be able to do anything that we do That's more of a traditional blank check type situation. We don't have one right now that's available for investors, so I can talk about it. But it's something to where we are able to make investments in everything that we do, as opposed to the standalone vehicle that's a conduit into a particular theme or a particular investment. But it is always a mixture. Some of our strategic partnerships are just the fund and we get very preferential economics there. In some cases, it's the fund and co-investments with preferential rights and preferential economics. In other cases, it's the fund, it's co-investments alongside that fund, and then everything that that sponsor does, we get preferential rights. And when you're writing multi-nine-figure commitments to these partners, obviously you're able to get access to things that people would never get to on their own unless they also were writing those multi-nine-figure type of checks. What does your due diligence process look like on one of these themes? Long and painful is the easiest way to explain that. And in the themes themselves, they happen a lot more organically and gradually over time. And going back to that statement of the power of the ecosystem is the ecosystem, the power of our network is that we have so many different relationships that we can triangulate around to both people, team, process, Candidly, I said this actually to my wife last night about something that we're looking at. If after three phone calls, we can't find someone who knows this team, then there's a reason why they're not known and we're probably going to pass. Not always, but that's a good litmus test. So we're able to really triangulate across our investors, the sponsors that we work with, and then obviously everything we know sector-wise, industry specialists, people that we know that are focused on that particular industry as an example. So once we identify that theme, then we start broadcasting to the world that we're interested in a particular theme. Well, everybody who has a fund in that space should be calling us at that point because they want our money. (laughs) And I understand that. And I would call me if I was them too. But we then are able to have both inbound and outbound. But a lot of our really successful investments have been us calling people and saying, hey, we're looking for the very best in agricultural technology as an example. We believe that the way that food is going to be grown is going to be different in the future. So we started asking around and it kept pointing to the same firm, the same firm, the same firm. Well, guess what? We wanted to have a conversation with them. And we realized there was a couple of firms, two of which we passed on, one of which we invested with. So that's a good example of how that will be the case. And then on top of that, With 30-plus years in the industry personally and our firm having 20-plus years of experience with over 100 different sponsors, we have a pretty good idea who the best in the business are, and we're able to usually get access to those opportunities that they're presenting.
0: What are the areas that you're looking at now?
1: So the change of the consumer behavior is a big, big deal, and so we are very focused on how that is affecting media, how it's affecting marketing and advertisers and things of that nature. We've been very involved in esports. Those kind of go hand in hand. And what I mean by that is the target market for the sweet spot for advertisers, that 18 to 40-year-old male and female, depending on what the product is, well, those folks, generally speaking, are not watching cable these days. So how do you reach those eyeballs? And so as a result, you've got to do something different. Well, eSports is a way to accomplish that. Live sporting events is another way to accomplish that, which is an area that we're very focused on. You look at esports, and just it's such a massive sea change in the way that behavior is happening and what exactly those people choose to do with their time. So, esports is a big part of that. Obviously, healthcare, I kind of touched on a little bit. Healthcare is going to change so dramatically over the next three decades, and we're involved in things everything from companies like Keras. Life Sciences, which ran one of the largest funding rounds of 2021, being able to look at somebody's blood and identify potential threats to their health years before it would actually show up in any other manner, as an example. Obviously, in vaccinations and all those kinds of things, we have partners that are very, very much experts in healthcare. The disruptive technology, we're very involved in things related to agricultural technology. How food is being grown, how it's being created in some ways, not grown. Obviously, that's not a totally new thing, but how it's being created and and delivered to consumers is a very, very big deal. And then obviously just the disintermediation of so many different industries, whether it be malls and retailers by way of Amazon and everybody else or just direct to consumer business models that are really really taking over so much of the consumer landscape and then obviously in the gp stakes business we see so much money looking for home that it's going to go somewhere and a lot of it's going to end up in the private markets and that's an industry that we think is going to continue to grow very fast
0: so what have you learned from 20 years in the business
1: That's a long list. I actually put in our, (laughs) it's on our website. Everybody can go. It's up open for public review, but it was our second quarter letter was our 20th anniversary. So in that letter, I actually put a list that's a very long list of everything we've learned over the last 20 years. So some highlights that I would hit is that ultimately maximum alignment equals maximum profits. If you're not aligned with your investors, if we're not aligned with our team, if we're not aligned with our own philosophies, Usually it's a challenge. Doesn't mean it can't work, but it's less likely to work. So maximum alignment equals maximum profits. The other thing is having a clearly understood primary outcome. When I was involved in helping with a number of people solve the Houston pension crisis a couple of years ago, the reason why it was stuck in legislation, and even though the mayor was for it and the legislature was for it and the employees Or fourth, the reason it was stuck is that nobody could come up with what was the key priority. So one of my contributions was refining everybody down to what's our key priority. Number one, take care of the taxpayer. They're the one that are paying the bills for this. Number two, keep our promises to the people that we made promises to, the employees, the retirees. And then number three, if we can, try to make the politicians happy. But we're not going to do number three unless we do number two. And we're not going to do number two unless we do number one. And so we were able to have this clarity of thought. Well, literally every single decision that we make internally, particularly when we're doing some of the innovative things that we do, what is our key priority? If we can't do that, nothing else matters. So have that key focus and know what the end in mind is that you're trying to accomplish brings a lot of clarity to decisions, to thought, and also to energy. The other thing is, and this is a line directly from Tony, where focus goes, energy flows. If you're scattered around looking at so many different things, which is funny hearing this from somebody who looks at 1,500 investments every single year, but our themes help us refine that down so quickly. If it's not a fit to one of our themes, we're usually a quick pass. But if your focus is too misdirected or directed in too many different places, it's very difficult to apply enough energy to really move the needle. The other thing that I would say that is not specific to our firm, and obviously there's lots of people that have said this as well, but it really does come down to attention to detail. And if there's one thing that we tell all of our new hires and everybody that joins our team, it's that the work ethic everybody can do and everybody should do. But the attention to detail is really what separates the wheat from the chafe. And it's only by that attention to detail and being excellent at every single thing you do, whether it be returning an email, returning a phone call, looking at an investment, writing an IC memo, whatever it is, you need to be the best at it. And if you're not doing your very best, then you might as well not try. And then the last thing that I would say is putting ourselves on the side of the table with the investors goes back to maximum alignment, but it's just so much different To say it in a slightly different context, it means so much different. And that is, in most cases, we don't charge management fees at all. We just get paid a percentage of the profits. And if there is no profit, we don't get paid. Well, everything then focuses around that same common objective, which is let's make a great return. We're not perfect and we're not going to be right every single time. But if the only reason we're doing it is because we really have conviction, then that ultimately is going to differentiate us from everybody else in the industry. Again, there's a lot of people that can provide access. Most people, though, are just doing that. Here's a menu. Do you want burger and a fries with that? How about we add on a sundae for you? That's not the way we work. It is about let's make great investments, put a bunch of our own money in it, and then the rest of the world is welcome to come alongside of us. And they know that we're trying to create as much alpha as we can because everything is tied to that specific outcome. And there's others that I could list, but that's probably a good place to stop.
0: So at a couple of different times from the very beginning, you mentioned Tony. So having taken his course early on, he ultimately bought a stake in the business and and the little lesson along the way. Walk me through the nature of that relationship over whatever it is the past two decades.
1: It's a fascinating story that... He did not know most of this story until literally about eight months ago. And the story did start with me seeing uh, one of his commercials when I was literally 20 years old. I graduated high school earlier, graduated college early. And so I was a young fellow that just really wanted to succeed and just started in the investment business. And I saw that. I said, I want to order that. Lisa and I did the 30-day program and set the goals that I mentioned earlier. And I told Tony this, and it was something that really took him aback the first time I had some time with him just one-on-one. And I said, other than my wife and my faith, there's nobody on this planet that has had more of an impact on my life than Tony Robbins. And that's a pretty cool thing for him to hear, and he hears that from a lot of different people. But so all along... For the last 30 years of my adult life, he has been driving so much of the decisions. Well, last summer, a year ago summer now, a referral of a referral introduced us to A.J. Gupta, who is Tony's financial guy. If you read the book Money, Master the Game, A.J. is profiled in that book. So we were introduced to A.J., AJ looked into what we're doing and said, wait a second, how is it that those guys don't get paid unless they make money? I mean, that's as much alignment as you can have. They became investors in a couple things we were doing in the GP Stakes world. Tony was like, I don't get this. How in the world do they do this business model? I don't understand. I want to learn more. So that led to a dinner with AJ and Josh Robbins, who is Tony's son. And it was such an amazing evening because they didn't have any idea of my connection with Tony that I've been to four live events, that I've done everything that he's ever done, basically. And I literally have managed this business with Tony-isms for the last two decades plus. And... Because of that, it was like, okay, we got to get you in front of Tony because there's got to be something to do here. That led to a meeting with Tony in Florida at his house. That led to us discussing how one plus one could equal a lot more than two. And that led to our strategic investment that we accepted from Tony and and Josh and AJ and others in May of this year. And what's so fascinating about that is not only is it just full circle and it's really kind of cool from that perspective, But what he teaches and how he teaches it for our team, they see how much value is added to their personal life, not just economically, but also the rest of their life and how we live our lives every day and how we talk and how we communicate internally as an organization. And it's been really a lot of fun and he's a great partner.
0: What are some of the favorite aphorisms you use inside the business?
1: Where focus goes, energy flows. When would now be a good time? To do that is another one that I would say is a Another one is complexity is the enemy of execution is another great quote there. Another one that I talk about all the time is, is in his course, Business Mastery. They talk about the seven forces of business mastery and how basically all businesses can be broken down into seven categories, and one of which is raving fans. When we built our promises, our number one promise that we make to our team, and as well as publicly to our investors, is number one rule do what's best interest of the partners and make raving fans of our partners. So we use the raving fan concept extensively. Another one would be constant and never-ending improvement in canny C-A-N-I, and just optimization. And I could literally go on and on because what blew Tony away, and I'm, I'm going to quote him and he's not going to mind me quoting him in this way, is he says, of all the people that have ever been through my programs, I'm not sure that anybody actually compared it back as well as Christopher can (laughs) because I have a bit of a photographic memory and so I can literally say the things that I learned eight years ago at Date with Destiny or at Business Mastery and they still are very much on the top of my tongue and we use them literally every day in the way we manage the business.
0: So now that you have Tony and his team in your corner, what will Cas look like in a few years?
1: It's evolving. The power of the ecosystem is the ecosystem and the global network that we have. The bigger it gets, the better everybody benefits from that. Well, obviously, Tony has an enormous microphone, but the vast majority of what we do is only available to qualified purchasers. So we have some things that are available to accredited investors, but very, very, very little. So we are looking at strategic partnerships. We're very open to strategic partnerships about ways that we can allow a lot more investors to invest with us in what we do. But when we think about the relationship with Tony, investment advisors are some of our absolute largest fans of ours because we can provide their clients with access to things that they cannot get anywhere else. There are a lot of platforms out there that provide access, but very few have curated that access and is more alpha as opposed to beta. A lot of investment advisors really prefer the alpha that we're able to generate and the exclusivity that we're able to provide to them, and in some cases, the customization, where we can actually build a vehicle specifically for an investment advisor. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but Tony and AJ and Josh are very connected in the investment advisor world and have been for a long time. They know a ton of investment advisors, so they're opening doors to those investment advisors so that those advisors can learn about how we can help them grow their business and how they can obviously do a better job for their clients.
0: All right, Christopher, before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I'm a golfer. I love the game. I love everything about it. I was a football player in college, blew up my knee, couldn't play football anymore. So I took up the game of golf, ended up walking on and playing at Texas Tech. was never good enough to travel, but I was able to be on the team. And ever since then, it's been a passion of mine.
0: What's your most important daily
1: habit? Daily habits, my quiet time without question. My day starts with my quiet time. It's the most important thing. I'm a person of faith. And so that's a really, really critical place for me to get centered in my daily life and then move on to my exercises, et cetera. What's your biggest pet peeve? Mm, Lack of attention to detail. If I talk about attention to detail on the positive, I'd be remiss if I didn't say on the other side, it's just people not paying attention to that detail that really Ultimately, may not seem like a big deal at the time, but it can be a sign of other things.
0: How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: People that literally are all in it for themselves and are focused purely on what's in it for them. We have a a big, hairy, audacious goal as a firm, and it's to make $20 billion in profits for our investors over the next 20 years. Everything about our life every day is how we're going to make money for people, for them to support their family, their causes, their charities that they want to support is a pet peeve when investment advisors come in and just talk about how, you know, they're great and they're great and they're great. And by the way, did they mention that they're great? And that's the entire reason why they're saying why we should invest in their opportunity. And they may be great, but it should be a lot more about what's in it for the client as opposed to what's in it for them.
0: You mentioned this earlier. Maybe talk a little bit more about which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life.
1: So Tony would be absolutely number one. The second biggest impact on my professional life, that's my wife. Lisa has been my partner. We've been together since I was 15 years old. She's a couple of years older than me, and she likes to tell people she got me young enough to train me, and there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> but Lisa has been my partner in everything that we've done, not just as a spouse, but also she's just, she's very wise. She's able to give me good counsel, and every major decision is bounced off of her. There's only been two major decisions I've made in my life that just were really bad decisions, And both of them were ones where she was opposed. And I was like, I I got this. I know better. And I learned my lesson that, no, if she's really opposed to it, that spidey sense or gift of discernment, whatever it may be, I'm not going to go against what she thinks is wise.
0: This goes right into the next one. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: You've got to hire the right people. And if you think that there might be a possibility, maybe that this is a bad idea to hire this person, don't hire them. And ultimately that fits with that old adage, which is I've really, it took me a long time to learn and I, I still struggle with it, but is hire slowly, fire quickly. I can think of two really big hiring mistakes that I've made over the years. Both of them ended up very, very not well, probably the best way to put that. And it's because of the fact that I didn't go with what my discernment was or what my gut was telling me. And I was like, oh, this, we can make this work. It'll be fine. Now, if it's not really strong, like this is a good idea, don't do it. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? That's a hard one for me because of the fact that I disconnected from my father basically when I was 13. So I don't really have that. I can tell you probably, and my mother, I have a great relationship with her, but I was the man of the house starting when I was 13 years old. And so I was more the parent from that point on. So I would go back to something that absolutely my father, prior to him getting off his path, I'll put it that way. He did talk to me about hard work. He taught me about attention to detail. And ultimately, if you set your mind to something, you can accomplish anything that you want. And so for that, even though I was separated from my father for the rest of his life, I absolutely love him and appreciate for the fact that he taught me at a very young age when it mattered, set your goals, set your outcomes, and then go figure out how to go get it.
0: All right, Christopher, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Have passion in whatever it is that you do. There's various points in time over my career where I've done things because they were profitable, not because I was passionate. And what I learned more than anything else at Date With Destiny in 2013 was figure out what your passion is and then go figure out how to create an irresistible offer, which for us is we don't get paid unless people make money to go figure out how to do that in a way that totally differentiates you from the marketplace. Because as our largest investor would say, if he was on this call right now, is he would say, one of the reasons that we're with Kaz and with Christopher is because he loves what he does and he's passionate about it. That doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's passionate. And most people go through life doing things that they're not really not passionate about. And that's a shame because life is too short to not be passionate. Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time.